Well, we are uh, finishing up our series on the Sermon on the Mount this morning. We started at the beginning of the summer, so it's been a long journey, and, uh, and we're coming to an end here. And I want to begin with an illustration um, that I think prepares us for these illustrations that Jesus is sharing. And so just let's, let's, I'm going to share this illustration. Let's jump in here with this, is that let's say a person went to a doctor and they received a dreadful diagnosis. And the diagnosis was of a rare and often fatal illness. But the doctor said, hey, there's, there's, one, there's one good spark of hope in this. It's like, despite that this is rare and it is fatal, it is treatable. Like there is a treatment plan and a specific treatment plan that if you follow it, it's, it's guaranteed cure. And the patient obviously would be very relieved at that, right? And the doctor would uh, outline the treatment plan and what the patient would need to do. And then a follow-up visit would be scheduled in a month. And so the patient walks out, obviously sobered but relieved. There's a treatment plan ahead, comes back in a month. So the patient revised back, arrives back at the doctor's office in a month, but in a worse condition. And so the doctor just immediately comes in and is puzzled at what's going on. And the doctor said, hey, listen, what, did you understand the treatment plan? Yes, I understood it. Well, have you been following the treatment plan? No, I, I know I need to, and I'll, I'll get around to it, but I haven't followed it yet. So the doctor moves from puzzlement to a little bit shocked and warns the patient again, hey, this is a specific treatment plan. If you follow this, your condition will get better. But if you don't, it will worsen. And so the patient leaves the doctor's office, assures the doctor, I understand, I'm going to follow through this time. I'm going to move forward. Follow-up visit is scheduled a month later. And so a month later, the patient arrives back at the office, but in even worse condition. And the same exchange occurs again, where the doctor is puzzled and shocked, but warns the patient once again, of the, you got to follow the treatment plan. And the same response is given. The patient says, I know, I understand, I haven't gotten around to it yet, but I will. And so another follow-up visit is scheduled with more promises. But the patient never arrives back for this last follow-up visit. Their condition overtook them. This is a little dark illustration to begin with. I get that. Um, so I apologize for that on the front side. But what's the point of this? Well, when you hear the illustration, part of you is shocked, right? You're shocked that there was a treatment plan available that would lead to cure but the patient never followed it. And it wasn't an issue of understanding. It was an issue of taking action. And the point of the illustration is, is to draw some clarity for us. That there is a real difference in that illustration between understanding the doctor and trusting what the doctor says and obeying what the doctor asks the patient to do. Very different things. Now, you can, you, you can say, hey, listen, if you're going to trust and obey the doctor, you probably need to understand the doctor. But there is a distinct difference between understanding and trusting and obeying. It's not the same. And so how does that connect to where we are at the Sermon on the Mount? Well, we're at the end of the sermon, and Jesus gives us three or four, depending on how you want to read it, very challenging illustrations that get at the heart of the very same thing. Will you just understand what I'm saying, or will you trust and obey me? That's at the heart of what Jesus is after here in these illustrations. And I think it's helpful to remember who he's talking to. At this point, the gospel is, is in, and Jesus' ministry is focused on the Israelites. It's focused on, and there are a few God-fearers around them, but it's focused on people who very well knew the Old Testament 
and had religious leaders who had taught them the Old Testament. And it also was, and, and you got to understand, these folks were attracted to Jesus. He's giving the sermon. They're gathered to hear him. They're listening to him. They're intrigued about what he's saying. And so he's not talking to people who have no idea who he is and what he came to do. He's talking to people who were gathered to hear him, were intrigued by him, and in some degree were interested in following him. And I think what, how that illustration sets us up, it's, it's very easy for even us as hearers of Jesus' sermon today and over this summer to say, bravo, Jesus, what a great teacher you are. There are a few things that I could pull away from your sermon for my life, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to adopt them. And then we just walk away, and that's it. And I think Jesus is honing in on something that's true about human nature, and it's true about the church today, is that it's very easy on a Sunday morning to gather every week, to walk in the doors of the church, and to read our Bibles, and to give, and to say all the right things, but walk out of church and miss everything that Jesus is about. It's just very, very easy to do that. And so Jesus, at the end of his sermon, is belaboring the point that it really matters that you understand that there's a difference between understanding what I've told you and trusting me and obeying me. And he's wanted to draw that out for us this morning. And so the big picture summary of what I hope we walk away with this morning, you'll see it on the screen, it's on your outline, is this, is that Jesus lovingly warns and invites us to fully trust and obey him in every area of our life. And that my plea to us this morning is that we would receive that and we would trust him and want to follow him in all that he's taught. Let's pray. Father, as we gather in, there are, there are some folks in here that have been I uh, can't remember a day that they didn't uh, begin going to church and gathering together. And Father, you, you have laid out some amazing teaching for us this summer in the Sermon on the Mount that we've been astonished in a lot of ways by Jesus' wisdom and his power and his authority and the beauty of what he says. But we confess before you, it is really easy to walk in these doors, no matter how many times we've been here, and to hear it and walk away and never really follow what you've said. And I, I confess that to you as one who has taught many of these sermons this morning, how easy it is to study all week, to teach and proclaim what you taught, and to walk away and forget everything that I said. It is so easy for us. But we also gather knowing that you love us, and that Jesus gives us three illustrations to get us our attention, and to gather our thoughts, and to push us, to wrestle with following him. And so would we do that this morning? Would you meet us here? Would you do what we have no power to do, which is to make your word come alive to us? We need you. It's your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to begin by digging into these kind of illustrations. And I, <coughs> I just want to give you a warning up front is we can't spend very much time. Uh, there's three to four illustrations been on you painted out, and they're very rich. And if you've looked at them this week, you could go into a lot of detail in all of them. And unfortunately, we don't have the time for that. Uh, but so just to, what we're going to focus on is the common theme in each of these illustrations. And that's that Jesus is challenging us with the choice. And you see that in the first one in the gate and the path. And so we're going to look at um, verses 13 and 14. He says this, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many for the gate is narrow 
and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. There's a choice here. Each time in all of these illustrations, he's doing comparison and contrasting to get us to see that there is a choice before us. And so the choice here is between two gates that lead to two different paths. The wide gate leads to an easy path, the narrow gate to a difficult and challenging path. In this language of, and we'll start there, just a few thoughts on the narrow gate and the hard path is that Jesus uses the same language of a gate in John 10 to speak of coming into a pen where he is the shepherd over his sheep, that he is the gate through which you enter and that you begin following him after that, that we enter into a, a, this kingdom of God through a relationship with Jesus and begin to follow him along this path. You, you get that same image here. And he's been outlining the whole Sermon on the Mount. You could even say it began with the gate of, of being poverty, of poor in spirit. And from there on, he's been describing what this path looks like. He's been outlining it. And if you've come in here at any Sunday, you've realized how difficult and challenging the path that Jesus puts before us. To be salt and light, to store up treasures in heaven, to love your enemies, to not succumb to judging others. I mean, these are, he's speaking against things that are very, very difficult and challenging for us to follow. It's not an easy path, and he's reminding of us here. But he says, you've got a choice between the narrow gate and the wide gate. And so this picture of that, that image really gives us a picture of what he's after here, that this, this gate is wide, right? What, what does he mean by that? Well, there's a, it's common. That's part of what wide is. It's, it's just common. Like, it, this, this gate is going, this path has a lot of folks on it, and you're not going to be um, marginalized for going down that gate. You won't be. And it's wide in the sense that, and the image on the, on the screen is meant to portray this, that that to get through that narrow gate is, is a bit restrictive. You just can't carry a lot through it. But the wide gate is wide. You can bring whatever you want to on that path. And so he, he's getting at here what's, what's going on, and this path is easy and comfortable. John Stott, uh, one, a, a theologian and commentator, I've been reading all through the Sermon on the Mount, describes it this way, and the quote will be on the screen for you. He says, one way is broad. The word means spacious and roomy or easy, and some manuscripts combine these images and call the way wide and easy. There is plenty of room on it for a diversity of opinions and laxity of morals. It is the road of tolerance and permissiveness. It has no curbs, no boundaries of either thought or action. Travelers on this road follow their own inclinations, that is, the desires of the human heart and its fallenness. And so he elaborates on that. He says, superficiality, self-love, hypocrisy, mechanical religion, false ambition, censoriousness, or kind of a judging spirit. These things do not have to be learned or cultivated. Effort is needed to resist them. So he's saying there, all the things that we find very easy to do, that's what this path is all about. It makes no effort to have to walk down this path. No effort is required to practice them. That's why the way is broad and easy. And so, so much more could be said about thinking about those two paths but the point is what Jesus is saying is I've just told you all of this you've got a choice which gate will you walk through which path will you be on that's the choice that he lays before us will you trust him that the narrow gate that is restrictive to move into leads to a path that is far better even though it's more difficult than anything the easy path would offer He's inviting his hearers to trust and obey him, to follow through. And we see a similar but a different take on this in the fruit 
And we'll see this in verses 15 through 23. And so this is more beginning to think about not just the path, but what is being produced in your life. And he says here, starting in verse 15, and some could maybe split this out into two different uh, illustrations, but they all lead to the same thing. He says in verse 15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by the fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, and that's a sign of that, a familiarity, a, an urgency there to repeat that phrase, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There's uncomfortable illustrations here. And so Jesus is addressing the reality of false prophets who in the context would, would be wooing people to go on the, through the wide gate into the easy path. But I think what he's getting at here with false prophets is just very true for every one of us and is applicable to all of us. And what he's getting at here is that the fruit that one bears in your heart and life, it reveals what path you've chosen. It reveals what path you're on, what gate you've walked through. It reveals whether you've merely understood as many in Jesus' presence would have or whether you've trusted and obeyed. And this illustration for us, I mean, I, don't, I mean I'm not a farmer. We, don't have any, we do have some apple trees in our backyard, but I don't know that I would trust the apples that come off of them. Um, but in Jesus' day, this, this illustration, they, they, would have, they would have gotten it. And what he, what one, of the one of the things he says in there is this idea of, of fruit, and, uh, and specifically, I don't have it right in front of me, but the, they, there was something that was called a buckthorn plant that produced these, these fruits that were, looked like grapes. But if you were to pick them and try to make wine with them, you would quickly learn that it's not the same fruit. So they get that. They understand that. They, they, they would register what's going on there. And so Jesus is laying out clearly that you either bear good fruit or bad fruit. And he gets into this really weedy territory here where he says you can even profess to be a follower of Jesus, which is many on that day would have been on the wide path, would have been in one sense, think they were following Jesus. He, he says, you can profess to follow Jesus, meaning that phrase, Lord, Lord, in there. And you can even do spiritual things and have spiritual experiences, as they did. They prophesied in Jesus' name and cast out demons. But even that does not indicate what path you're following. Now, we would look on someone who professes faith and has all these great, wonderful spiritual experiences, and we would say, oh, for sure, they're on a the path that Jesus is walking on. And Jesus is saying, not necessarily so. It's proved in the fruit that they bear. And so on the surface, it may look like the buckthorn plant, but underneath it all, they're not on the path. They're not following me in all that I've said. Jesus says, the one who does the will of his Father in heaven is the one who's on the path of the kingdom. And so fruit, and Jesus is, illustration here isn't necessarily seen in our profession or our understanding our spiritual experiences fruit is seen in whether we have trusted him and are trusting him and obeying him 
Again, the two choices there. And then we see this come up again in his last illustration on the foundation. And this will be in verses 24 through 27. And he says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them and does not do them will be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So again, the crux of this illustration is to remind us there's a choice before us. And you've got two houses, just like you had two types of fruit and you had two paths. And the two houses look virtually the same. Just like the buckthorn plant on the surface looks virtually the same as the grape. But a storm comes and one crashes down and the other does not. And what's the difference? It's the foundation that the house was built upon. You see a picture on the screen here. That's not doctored by AI. Uh, that is a legit picture from 2018 of a house in Mexico Beach after Hurricane Michael. What was the difference between that house and all the houses surrounding it? It was not on the outside. It was the guts at what made up the structure of that house and the way they built it that allowed it to stand the test of that storm that came through. And that's the, very, that's, a, that's the very picture of what Jesus wants us to have in our mind when we think about what he's saying here. In this image of a foundation and being built on a rock, that's, this is not the only place that, that talks about this, but Jesus here actually references it in a different way than other scriptures reference it. Other places you'll see that Jesus is the rock that we're building on, and that's very true, his work on the cross and all of that. But that's not technically what he's saying here. Although that is congruent with that. It's, I mean, in line with that. What he's saying here is something different. What does he say here? The house that lasted and built was built upon what? They hear the words of mine. So they understand them. But what happens? They do them. They trust and obey. That's the foundation of this house. And so that's not counter to where, that we're saved by grace. I'm, we're going to get to that in a moment. But Jesus, again, is wanting to emphasize to his hearers that you have a choice. You either follow what I'm saying or you don't. You listen, trust, and obey what I've told you in the Sermon on the Mount, or you just acknowledge and go about business as usual. And I think one of the things he's getting at here is the reality is that storms will come. Life is going to have a lot of storms, but there's going to be a storm of my return. And the house that will last is a house that was built, and what was evident in that foundation is that they trust and obeyed me. And so again, he's pulling up the issue that we have a choice before us. And so that's kind of the big theme of each one of those illustrations. But there's some common elements of those illustrations that show us the seriousness of what Jesus is after here, that he's pressing in on. So I want to, I want to mention those. And uh, that is a common element of each one of these. And the first one that we see here is that Jesus' warning is for those inside the church. I think that it's easy. And part of the ways that we deceive ourselves as frequent churchgoers if you are one, is that, oh, I'm not like everyone else that doesn't come to church. And far from it, Jesus doesn't just give us wiggle room in that. And that, that's, if you walk into a church and what's being taught is more a you thing and not a we thing, you need to question what you're hearing. Because we all sit together with the same struggles as everybody in the world. 
And, but Jesus in this sermon in particular seems to be addressing those inside the church. Right? The first illustration, again, most of his hearers were God-fearing Jews at this time and people who had begun to follow him. So he's saying there's two paths before him. Well, the only people who know about the path before him are those who are hearing his words, who were all mostly Jewish folks and religious leaders. That's the context. So who would be on that wide path at this point? Would be those who are intrigued by Jesus' teaching. What's the second illustration we see here? He addresses the fact that there are many who would profess to know Jesus, who perform miracles in his name, who had spiritual experiences and had the resume in a sense, but didn't know him. In this illustration, he's addressing those inside the church. That's who the warning is for. And in the third illustration, the house collapsed. The house that collapsed were not, were not people who had never heard of Jesus' teaching. That's not what he's addressing here. Other parts of the Bible might address that. That's not what he's addressing. He's addressing the people who had heard his words but did not respond. That's who he's addressing. And the point is, is it's just really easy to come in on Sundays, to read your Bible, to give to the church, but be on the wide and easy path and build your life on the wrong foundation. That's what he's after here. What he's saying is, it's really easy to understand the treatment plan and never really trust and obey the doctor. I'm going to go back to John Stott. It's a little lengthy. I've tried to trim it up as best I can, but he sums up so clearly this issue of this warning being for us who gather in the church on Sunday mornings. He says, Jesus is not contrasting professing Christians with non-Christians who make no profession. On the contrary, what is common to both spiritual housefitters is that they hear these words of mine. So both are members of the visible Christian community, which is us. Both read the Bible, go to church, listen to sermons, and attend Christian meetings. The reason you often cannot tell the difference between them is that the deep foundations of their lives are hidden from you. If you were to travel to Mexico Beach before that hurricane, all the houses would have looked the same. That's what he's saying. The real question is not whether they hear Christ's teaching, nor even whether they respect or believe it, but whether they put it into practice what they hear. Only a storm will reveal the truth. Sometimes a storm of crisis or calamity betrays what manner of person we are. If not, the storm of the day of judgment will certainly do so. The truth in which Jesus is insisting in these final two paragraphs in the sermon is that neither an intellectual knowledge of him nor a verbal profession, though both are essential in themselves, can ever be a substitute for obedience. So Jesus doesn't want us to listen to the sermon and walk away and say, oh yeah, I know a few people that need to hear that. He wants us to hear the warning for us as we gather. But there's another warning in here. Jesus warns that a profession of faith without a change of the way we live is an empty profession. So this section of his teaching debunks this idea that's out there that Jesus is just this nice guy who accepts and affirms everyone regardless of the way they live. Now there's the distinction I want to make. Jesus does say, come as you are and bring all your brokenness to them. And he welcomes that. All of our baggage, even all the baggage that we have no idea that we're holding. But Jesus promised never to leave us there. That when he, we begin to follow him, he enters into our life, he begins going room to room on a construction project and begins to reorient every aspect of our life, readying for us the time when he returns. 
And so he does accept us as we are, but he never promises to leave us the way we are, but to carry us home to him. And so it's getting at this illustration that he will change us. He will, he loves us far too much to leave us as we are. And so each of these illustrations get at this, also this idea that Jesus isn't going to settle for anything but full commitment to him in every area of life. You go back and look at the Sermon on the Mount, if you haven't been with us, it's comprehensive. He's speaking to our entire lives, not specifically, but principles. And so all that he said is comprehensive. And what that means is, is that he speaks to every area of our lives. And he wants us to fully trust and obey him in every area of our life. And so I think that what that challenges us is, I mean, if you're like me, you, you want to follow Jesus like you, want to, like you go to a buffet line. There are certain things you like about Jesus that you want to accept and certain things you don't like that you don't want to accept. And it's really easy, especially with our culture, the way we're kind of told that we can just pick and choose whatever we want is right, that we can do that in the church even. I'll take a little Jesus. I'll take a little American dream. I'll take a little of my own definition of sexuality. I'll take a little of my own view of politics as a savior. And you just name it. We, we just want to construct this Jesus that we want to follow. And Jesus says, no, you follow me as I say I am, or you don't. There's only two paths. You can't create a new path in which you define Christianity any way, which way you want. We can't put Jesus in a box in that. You can't have both paths. Your life will reveal what kind of fruit tree you are. But I want us to understand, too, that this call that we must have total commitment to Jesus does not contradict that we're saved by grace in any way. Now, I can't, we can't take the rest of the sermon to explain that, so I'm going to give you one illustration that gets to the point, but this is something that needs to be hashed out more and more. So I'm going to give you an illustration that, that will help us here, and it's the idea. So let's say you had a lemon tree in your backyard when you bought a house, but you don't like lemons. Uh, you don't like sour fruit. You want something sweet, so you want an orange tree. So what would be the way that you would go about gaining oranges on the orange tree, on the tree? Would you go out in your backyard, get a ladder out, start pulling off lemons, go buy some oranges from the store, and figure out a way to staple them to the limbs? Would you do that? Well, that would be absolutely ludicrous. And it's, if you want an orange tree, if, let me put it this way, if you want sweet fruit that tastes like oranges in your backyard, you got to get rid of the lemon tree. You need an orange tree. That's what Jesus is getting at with the fruit thing here. He's not saying, go clean your life up and figure out how to staple good fruits into your life. What he's saying here is when you enter in to the narrow gate, when you come to me poor in spirit with open hands saying, Jesus, I got nothing. I need you. I want to follow you. But I can't even muster up the effort of that. What Jesus is saying here is, I'm going to uproot the lemon tree that is your heart. And I'm going to discard it. And I'm going to plant an orange tree. And it may, it may take a while for some fruit to start bearing, but there will be good fruit that come in your life. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so Jesus is, what, what, what I think he sees about humanity, we're easily deceived in the type of fruit we think we bear. So he wants us to investigate the fruit to understand what's planted in our hearts. Not to try to pick the fruit off and put good fruit on, but to understand that we need a new fruit tree planted in our life.
And so that same grace that saves us, that plants that tree, is the same grace that will bear fruit over time. And it doesn't mean it's perfect. It doesn't mean it will always look great. It doesn't mean it won't go through rough seasons where there's different fruit that is not as fresh as other fruit. But it does mean that there'll be a a pattern of ongoing repentance in our lives. So Jesus warns us that an empty profession of the faith with no change of life is a dangerous thing. The last warning here is that the stakes are high. If you go back to each of those illustrations, Jesus wants to impress upon us. And this is what actually makes it so dang uncomfortable for us to hear, is he wants to impress upon us how serious this is. We want to walk away from the sermon and say, man, that was great, Jesus. He wants to walk away and say, hey, listen, you've got to wrestle with how serious this is. And it comes out in each of these illustrations. We enter the wrong gate, what happens? Verse 13 says, the wide path leads to destruction, even though it's easy. We bear bad fruit, what does he say? The good fruit, or the the tree is cut down and thrown in the fire. If the foundation is not on Christ, then what does he say? The storms and floods will come, and it will fall, and great will be the fall of it. And so these warnings by Jesus are meant to get our attention. And I believe he's wanting to wake us out of the apathy that we often have when we think about our lives, that how we respond to him truly matters. And no one would ever accuse a doctor of not being loving by warning a patient that if you don't follow the treatment plan, it will lead to your demise. Jesus here is being truly loving by warning us that the stakes are high, that you can't put him off for long. He wants to influence everything in our life, not just Sunday morning. And he's warning us that he will return and we will give an account. But this warning here also invites us to choose life. The narrow gate leads to life. He's wooing us. I mean, in one sense, he's saying, listen, I want you to have a house that will last. I want you to bear fruit that is sweet. I want you to be on the path that leads to life. Will you hear me? Will you trust me? Will you give me your life? So he's confronting us with this choice. We either settle for understanding or we trust and obey. So where do we go from here? Well, the sermon finishes talking about the response of the people, and it's in verse 28. This is what it says. And when Jesus finished these sayings, these, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as the one who had authority, not as their scribes or their religious leaders of the day. And so the sermon finishes with the people astonished at the authority of Jesus. They marveled the way he taught, his authority to speak these challenging words. Here's what's beautiful but for us to read this, is they read this, and, where, and even just think where they were oriented in the gospel story. They were firsthand hearing these teachings, but they had no idea, like we do, that the one who had authority would eventually go to the cross and bear the punishment for the reality that we have failed every one of his teachings. And he would go to the cross to not just do that, but to be able to empower us to have these new trees planted in our life to bear the fruit, and to walk and follow him in this path. And that's where we sit when we read this. So it's a beautiful thing for us. And so I would exhort you as you leave to let this challenge show us our need for Jesus. If you hear this and you're hearing Jesus' words, we ought to to all feel a sense of desperation. Like, what do I do then? I'm confronted with the reality that I'm called to investigate the fruit of my life and to evaluate what path I'm on. But when I look at the past, 
I am drawn to the, the narrow gate, but I also am drawn to the easy path. And I recognize how difficult this is. And what I want to encourage you is you are in the right place. Because that's the very place that you come to Jesus, the very way he told you in the Beatitudes at the very beginning, to come poor in spirit. To come saying, Jesus, I have no idea what to do. I'm coming with open hands because I need your grace. I couldn't fathom not following you, and I couldn't fathom how I'm going to follow you. Would you come into my life? That's where we all ought to walk in this morning, with open hands, show, seeing our need for grace, seeing that we're broken, we're morally bankrupt, and we need his forgiveness. Our entrance into the narrow gate is the same way we continue, <laughs> with open hands, asking him for his work. But then I also encourage you to let this challenge push us to reorient our life around Jesus. Jesus is making no bones about calling for total commitment, but it's a beautiful invitation. And I would leave you with this illustration. So almost 22 years ago, Noelle and I walked down the aisle, and she met me on the altar, and we exchanged vows to one another. And what if on that day, as she walked down the aisle, and we were face-to-face -face before the pastor, and before all our friends and family, I said, hey, babe, what if in my vows here, I, we also kind of vow that I'm able to keep a few girlfriends on the side? What would you think about that? Now, that's utterly stupid and ludicrous for lots of reasons, but, but what I want to point out is, one, she would be incredibly assaulted because marriage is an invitation to total commitment. But here's, one, here's the, another angle on that. That would be incredibly short-sighted of me. Why would I not balk at total commitment to Noel? Because there is no other path and no other girlfriend I could ever have that could compare to the goodness of committing fully to her and forever the rest of my life. That's the beauty of marriage. And did you know that Jesus compares a relationship with him like marriage as well? So when Jesus, in a sense, on the altar is calling us after this sermon for full and total commitment to him, he's not doing it in a way that is we're selling ourselves short. He's inviting us into an intimacy and a beautiful commitment that, yes, we say no to every other path, but what we gain is there is nothing in comparison. So Grace Church... Jesus is a brilliant teacher, but more than that, he wants your whole life. So would we trust him and obey him? Would we be willing to follow down this narrow path with him into life? Let's pray. Father, there are many days waking up where the wide and easy path looks far greater than the narrow path. But there is no other path that offers life. There is no other path in which you follow or call us to follow you, which you are there. And so would you meet each one of us where we are? It is a helpful and beautiful thing that we're finishing with the Lord's Supper because we'll be reminded that we can have total commitment to you because you had total commitment to us in coming to seek and save us and to forgive us for all the ways that we have failed to follow you and will fail to follow you. But you also came to empower us to see that there is life and that we can have it in you. 
So would you help us, each one of us, to wrestle with where we are, to deal with you, and to deal with these illustrations, but not do, do so in despair, but to do so with the hope that there is grace that will empower us to reorient every area of our life around you. We need you. In your name we pray. Amen.